You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning. Well, hey, little drummer boy. Uh, you got your breath there? Yeah. Oh, howdy. Jeff's going to come back and say, who beat the snot out of my drum set back here? That's what drummers do. Like preachers, you know, they say, when in doubt, shout. When a drummer's in doubt, he just hits it harder. That's right. And it somehow always tends to work itself out. Well, this morning, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 13. And we're also going to be referencing Acts chapter 11 in more of a summary way, but our focus of our text this morning is Acts chapter 13. We all know it's no secret to anyone that in 2020, uh, the church has been devastated in many ways. Our culture, our nation, the world has been devastated in many, many ways. And that's, that's no overstatement, is it? Nope. Is that an overstatement? Have you ever experienced anything like in this in your lifetime? I haven't, and I've got more years than, well, a few of you. <laughs> Individual congregations have been impacted, have closed their doors, and some of them, they tell us, will never reopen their doors. About a third of the churches in America, they estimate, will never reopen their doors. It's not just churches. It's happened to businesses who couldn't uh, pay their bills just like that. Many churches have not been able to just pay the bills. As many as a third of those, think about that, as many as a third of individual local expressions of the body of Christ will shut their doors. And I've thought about this off and on through the year of experiencing this, that what persecution has never been able to accomplish, COVID-19 has partially at least, has partially at least accomplished. I was reading this week again about the persecution of the church in China, and it's very real. This is very, very, very real, and it is happening. Even as China is presenting an image that they are wanting to move into the modern world and they want to be a cooperative nation, even as they are saying that outwardly, they are subverting the gospel of Christ, destroying churches, imprisoning pastors, persecuting God's people. But interestingly enough, is in that environment, the church is advancing, yep. and it, all, it has been. Ever since the bamboo curtain went down, there was just, you could count Christians in China by the, maybe the thousands. And when the bamboo curtain began to come up, there were millions, multiplied millions of, of Christians in China, and that number has continued to grow. And, and you think about that and you go, wow, you could say, what an incredible church in China. That's a great church, and it is. Mm-hmm. And that statement begs the question for us this morning, what is it that constitutes a great church? And and we use the word church in two different ways, as the New Testament does, as the church universal, all believers everywhere of all time, and then local expressions of the church. And so we use that in two different ways. So what constitutes a great church universally, worldwide, but also when we bring it down to the local level, what constitutes a great church? And historically, because... uh, we're so materialistically minded in America, 
we have typically, at least among pastors, we don't tell the people this that much, but I can remember even as far back as seminary kind of talking about this, you know, those of us that were hoping to be pastors one day. And, and we, we would laugh about it, about how our denomination measured the great churches of the denomination. And we had three metrics by which we measured that greatness. The first one was budgets. The bigger the budget, the better the church. Obviously, if you're spending more money, you must be doing more things. Well, we're sunk because our budget has shrunk this year and into 2021. The next one is baptisms. How many people are going through the waters of baptism? And from our understanding of theologically, that means how many are placing their faith and trust in Christ and then demonstrating that outwardly, symbolically, by the going under the water and coming up the death, burial, and resurrection to new life in Christ. And if that is a metric of a great church, well, we're going backwards because we have not seen that many, near as many, in fact, the fewest in the 37 years that I've been here that have come to faith in Christ and gone through the waters of baptism. I mean, that's just the honest. So budgets, baptism, and the third metric is butts. <laughs> How many butts are in the seat? How many people, did that offend somebody? How many people are attending church? If it does, you need to get a life, okay? Remember, if, how many, if it did, you're probably a butt. You're probably a butt, okay. How many are actually showing up to the church house, to the building for worship and Bible study and all those kinds of things? And if that is the metric of a great church, we're sunk. So by the, those metrics, there's probably not a great church left in America, is there? Because it's not only happening at City on the Hill, it's happening everywhere. Every church in America that I know anything about has shrinking budgets, empty baptistries, and fewer butts. Unless you're talking about cigarette butts. Maybe, maybe more of those. I don't know. People get nervous and start smoking. But by that metric, the church in China is not a great church. They don't have any of those things anywhere near some of the, even what maybe we have now. The truth of the matter is, folks, that never was a true metric for the church. It was always an artificial one. It was always one that was kind of based on self-idolization and, and, and American thinking process. There's nothing scripturally about that. So one thing that 2020 has done, if it hasn't done anything else, it is challenging us to reevaluate what does it mean to be the church? And what does it mean to be a great church? And by great, I mean, what does it mean to be a church that's accomplishing the calling of Christ. What metric should we use for measuring the church? And so this morning, what I want us to do, and I think this has given us a great opportunity as we throw the old metric out to look and say, well, what is a biblical metric? I think 2020 has given us as a church a great opportunity to reevaluate. And the church I want us to look at is an actual church, the church in Antioch of Syria, Chapter 11 is where we kind of begin to get introduced to them. And chapter 13, though, is going to be our focus. They give us some direction about what characterized the church in Antioch because our three metric would not have characterized them in any way that we particularly know of. We just don't really know that much about how they did those kinds of things. But what was a metric that we can use out of that church? First of all, this was a church in Antioch of recognized character. Now something happened historically in the book of Acts. Acts is the story of the birth of the church and the growth of the church and then moving on into the missionary journeys of Paul. But something happened in Acts chapter 7 that 
impacted the church incredibly. In fact, was a turning point for the gospel. In Acts chapter 7, the faithful follower of Jesus by the name of Stephen, what happened to Stephen? He got stoned to death, okay? Literal rocks, okay? He was put to death. He was the first Christian martyr. And we studied about that a number of weeks ago. But what happened with Stephen's martyrdom is it marked a great uh, persecution that broke out against Christians in the city of Jerusalem. Up until that time, they'd kind of been, well, they not really welcomed that much, but they were just more bothered with. But at this particular point, a great persecution began to break out. And, and so Christians began to flee Jerusalem for their lives. And they scattered virtually everywhere. The New Testament has a word that is used for that, that James chapter one uses that Greek word diaspora. They were like scattered seed. They were like spores that were scattered. And everywhere they went, they carried the gospel. You see, the Christians in Jerusalem were willing to die. They just weren't begging to die, okay? And so if they had an opportunity to get out, they got out. And they went to all of the surrounding regions, and some of them eventually landed in a, in a town called Antioch, which was in, at that time, was in a place called Syria. And what they did is they did what Christians always did, as they scattered with the seed of the gospel, they began to plant the seed of the gospel. And they began to proclaim Christ, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and the, the hope of eternal life through Him. And people began to believe and began to respond, and they did what they always did. They founded a local church, a, a local expression of the universal body of Christ where God's people would come together and they would worship together, they would study his word together, and then they would go out into their community and make a difference. The apostles had stayed in Jerusalem. But eventually what happened after, after this church got started, then the apostles who had stayed in Jerusalem sent Barnabas, you know, the encourager, uh, down there to encourage them. And they were, they were encouraged by what they were hearing and they wanted Barnabas to go down there and, and, and encourage them and spend some time with them and check them out. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a, in a moment. But what Barnabas discovered when he went to Antioch, the church in Antioch, is that this was the real thing. These were the real deal. These people were really living it out. Now, they had some needs, and, and Barnabas uh, saw to those needs, and, and Derek will talk about that in just a moment. But he realized and recognized immediately, this is a movement of God. These people are the real thing. Now, here's the thing. Not only did Barnabas recognize that, but evidently the people around them in the city of Antioch had already come to that conclusion. These people are different. Whatever this is that is going on, this is the real deal. In fact, it was so real the way they lived their life out and they lived their testimony in Christ out that people in Antioch, the city of Antioch, had already concluded this was real long before Barnabas got there and saw it. And we know that because in verse 26 of chapter 11, it tells us that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That is, a, we almost kind of read over that and just kind of skip right over that, but that is an incredible statement. It was in, the, in Antioch. They didn't call them Christians in Jerusalem. They hadn't been called Christians up to this point. But in Antioch, they were first called Christians. And that Greek word is Christ, uh, Christanos, okay? So, you know, we just kind of, kind of took that into our English language, which literally means Christ ones are little Christ's. It could be translated as little Christ. Now, I want you to notice three things about this particular appellation that they put on. That's a college word right there. That was great. I don't know where that even came from. That was so intellectual. That was, golly, are you impressed? Okay. 
Did I even use it right? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I must have then if you don't know. But three things about this nomenclature, that's another college Ooh, word, wow. that, they, that they were using. I'm just on a roll this morning, ain't I? You're so vivacious. I have I to be it. because I see a few of you nodding off, and I'm really going to wake you up. Okay. First, this was a name that was given to them by Gentiles, and by that, it was given to them by non-believers. It was non-believers that looked at them and called them Christians. The disciples themselves were not calling themselves this. They didn't refer to themselves as Christians. In fact, it wasn't until probably the second century after Christ that they began to take that on and call themselves Christians. So it was non-believers that called them Christianos. Second, it was meant not as a complimentary term. It was meant as a derisive term. In other words, this was meant as a term of derision. It was said by the people in Antioch who were not believers. It was said with a sneer, those little Christs, those Christians. That's how they would say that. It was not meant as a, as a, uh, as a compliment. In fact, Herod Agrippa Later on in Acts chapter 26, when Paul was being tossed around between the various Roman governors there and not sure what to do with him and all that kind of stuff, he eventually appealed to Caesar and they took him to Rome. But at this particular point, they were kind of passing him around. And at one point, he appeared before Herod Agrippa and Paul did what Paul did is he preached Jesus. He talked about the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus and all that kind of stuff. And, and Agrippa said this, he said, in a short time you will persuade me also to become a Christian. Now read that with a sneer. Read that with sarcasm. Read that as, in a short time, you might even persuade me to become one of these little Christians. That's how it would have been meant because it was not meant as a complimentary term. It was meant as a term of derision. It was insulting and Herod was not about to become a Christian, but he's throwing out a little barb. The Roman historian Tacitus, who's one of the most respected historians of Rome, was alive during this time and wrote about this, this particular time when Nero, the emperor Nero, who was an emperor at the time of Paul in Acts 26, when he set fire to the slums of Rome. There was a part of Rome that had gone down and he was embarrassed by it, wanted to get rid of it. So he thought, well, we'll just burn them out. Well, the, the populace of Rome rose up about this thing and uh, they started blaming Nero. And Nero wanted to get the blame somewhere else. And so Nero did, you know what he did? He blamed the Christians. He said, oh, it's the Christians that did this. And so great persecution began to break out in Rome. And so as the historian Tacitus began to write about this, he knew that it was Nero that had done this. And it wasn't the Christians, but this is how he wrote about it. This is secular history a Roman historian, not a Christian. He said, consequently, to get rid of the report, and the report that Nero wanted to get rid of was that maybe he was responsible for the burning parts of Rome, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. See, it was the populace that was calling them Christians. They weren't calling themselves this. This is, this, and he, he, he is exquisite tortures one of the tortures was he lit the Appian Way, which is the road out of Rome to the seacoast with the burning bodies of crucified Christians at night. That's how many Christians Nero was putting together. I've actually walked on the Appian Way, and it's awe-inspiring to think what happened in that place. I mean, just this incredible persecution began to break out. And, and he said, who are called Christians by the populace, Christus, from whom the name had its origin suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. 
and a most mischievous superstition. That's what he's referring to the Christian faith about, a mischievous superstition. Thus checked for a moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. You see, this whole idea about this name was not, was not a compliment to them, but it actually was, which is the third thing, is it actually was a compliment because when they called them Christians, when they called them little Christ, it was because of how they lived. And so even though they meant it as a term of derision, it actually was a compliment to these individual believers that they were great people because they were actually living out their faith. And they were called little Christ because they were so put such high value upon following Christ, upon adhering to the teachings of Christ and living out the message of the gospel. Isn't that incredible? And I wonder, I think the question that we have to ask ourselves today, the church individually, who are parts of the church and the church locally, how, how much do we live our lives out in such a different way that people who perhaps don't even know us well would know there is something different about that individual and it obviously is connected to this Jesus guy. It's obviously connected to this faith that they have placed in Jesus Christ. How do you define a great church? It has to begin with being built up of people of great character. In other words, who are serious about living out their Amen. faith Amen. in Christ Jesus. Amen. The second thing and the third thing Derek is going to jump into. So the second thing is that the church retained a great commitment. It's funny that Barnabas is really an important figure in the New Testament. I, he doesn't get as much publicity as I think he probably should. Uh, he's really central to the development of the early church. Encouragers never do. It's and always the prophets. It's get, always the, the prophets, right. And, and that is literally what his name means, encourager. And some people just have that gift, right? Like, do you know anyone that has just got the gift of encouragement? They're just, they're just a cut above the rest when it comes to, like, I can encourage you but when you hear my name, you're not thinking like encourager, right? Like it's just not. They think of me. That, it's that they think of James, right? Exactly. I'm such a non exactly. I'm such an encourager. Such a <laughs> such an encourager. But but here's the deal: it is an important gift to the church, and it was certainly important to the church in Antioch. But it also wasn't enough for the church in Antioch, and Barnabas recognized that. He recognized that one of the true metrics for the church had to be this great commitment. Not a commitment to one another, because they had been doing that mm -hmm. through encouragement, but chiefly and firstly to the Scriptures. Mm -hmm. The Scriptures. Acts eleven twenty five 25, and 26, it says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who is the Apostle Paul. And he, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Barnabas comes to Saul and he says, look, brother, we need a teacher, right? I'm high-fiving all day long. It's not getting it done. <laughs> we need someone to shepherd us in the Scriptures. And keep in mind, this is the same Saul who meets Jesus on the Damascus Road after persecuting and seeing to the death of Stephen that James referenced a moment ago. He gets knocked down. He's eventually changed into the Apostle Paul, shepherded by Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. You know the story. And so he goes with Barnabas to Antioch, and they begin to teach and preach there and equip for about a year. Did you just yada, yada, yada the discipleship of Saul? I did. I did. I yada, yada, yada it. I did. Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. They retained, and this is an important word, they retained their commitment to the Scripture. I want you to get that. The commitment to the Scriptures in Antioch was not new. 
It was what the church had always done from the very beginning. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, talking about the very earliest believers, says that they were daily devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, what is, this is a good question for you because I know some of you are thinking, what is the apostles' teaching? Or what is the apostles' doctrine? Some of your translations may say that. Simply put, it's everything that Jesus taught them. It's everything that Jesus taught them in the three and a half so years while he was in the flesh, walking with them, shepherding them, teaching them, yada, yada, yada. (laughs) Um, It was everything that he told them. Now, that's not the whole story, though, because this is an important, I want you to get this. This is fundamental to your understanding of why commitment to Scripture is so important. It wasn't just everything that he taught them while he was in the flesh before the resurrection and ascension. It was also, or and, everything that the Spirit reminded them of Mm -hmm. that He had taught them. Now, this is an important distinction for a couple of reasons. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 26, He said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your Mm -hmm. remembrance all that I have said to you. So listen, the apostles learned from Jesus. They walked with Him. He taught them. But after the resurrection and the ascension, when he goes to the right hand of the Father, the Spirit comes and brings to their remembrance everything that Jesus said. It's important because sometimes I think we get in our minds the idea that Scripture, particularly the New Testament, is just a bunch of letters by a bunch of guys who are just kind of remembering what Jesus told them. No. That's not what's happened. (laughs) This is literally revelation from God himself. It's not a man-made document. This is God-breathed is what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. Theonoustos is the Greek word there. Breathed out by God, God God-breathed. This is why Scripture matters so much. It's not a man-made religious book. It's God's revelation to humanity. And the church in its fledgling state has always been committed to it. It was always committed to it in Jerusalem, and when they fled to Antioch because of persecution from Nero, they retained that great commitment. And, and, and I will say to you, it is the greatest commitment that the church can have. Mm-hmm. I want you to really consider the weight of that. It is the greatest commitment that the church can have. Some of you may be saying or thinking to yourself, Uh, well, what about being committed to one another? Right, yeah, absolutely we should be committed to one another. Where do you learn that we should be committed to one another? (laughs) Right, well, what about doing the right thing, Pastor Derek? What about the moral life that we're supposed to live? What about living with integrity? Well, let me ask you, where do we get morality from? Where do we learn what right and wrong is? How do we know what integrity is? From the scriptures. And you say, well, but what about our commitment to Jesus? I mean, that has to be first and foremost. That's right. Right. Where did you learn about Jesus? Is it the same Jesus? So by your, by your reasoning, are, are Mormons on the same page as us? Are Jehovah's Witnesses on the same? They, they worship Jesus. Which Jesus is the good question, right? <laughs> the Jesus of Scripture is who we worship, who we revere. Scripture is foundational. You have to get this to every single thing that we do and believe in the church. Without it, we are lost. It is a light. It is a lamp unto our feet, is what the Psalms say. It is everything to us. This is, I'm not going to call it a new metric for the church. I'm going to call it the true metric for the church. Because it always has been the true metric for the church. The church lives and the church dies by it. Numbers, go ahead. And and I wonder, if you put this on a scale of 1 to 10 in your life, because this is where the rubber meets the road here. How, 
how high on your list of priorities of what you do is the Word of God? And of not just having it on the coffee table, but having it in your heart and reading it and studying it and individually and with other believers. We have to ask ourselves this question. And when we ask ourselves important? this question and answer it honestly, we may find out why the church in America is so anemic. Well, let me, because let me just tell you, numbers, like James talked about a minute, numbers may dwindle, right, at the mercy of either persecution or pandemic, but not our commitment to the Word of God. The, no virus can shake you from being not, you're either committed to the Word or you're not, mm -hmm. right? Neither violence nor virus can stop God's people from being committed to this. We live and we die by it. That's Historically, right. denominations that drift away from the centrality, the supremacy, the inerrancy of Scripture, it's only a matter of time before they die out completely. That's exactly right. They fade away, their numbers dwindle, and they are an afterthought. And our culture constantly is pressuring us yes. away from the truth of Scripture in order that we might compromise and be a little more comfortable in right. our secular culture right. and in the verbiage we use and, and in the, the, the priorities that we place on everything in our lives. And the word says one thing and culture says another. And because many Christians today are not really very knowledgeable about the word, then it's easier for them to be. The world is making more impact on the church in America than the church is making on Ooh. culture because me, of this. Let me just say, I, I read a lot of, of uh, so-called experts in the church field. That's a drip under pressure. You know That's that. a drip That's under an pressure. Expert. And the, the question that, that I've read a lot this year is, will the American church survive COVID-19? Will the American church survive COVID-19? The church will survive because Jesus said the church universe was going to survive, but will the American, will the American expression church, of it survive? Will the American church survive COVID-19? And here's the deal. Um, it's a stupid question. It, it's, it's, and, and sorry, parents, if you don't use that word, it's a dumb question. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're not supposed to talk, say stupid. Right. The church has survived far worse historically than a virus. As James mentioned a moment ago, uh, China right now is under tremendous persecution. No one in China, India, or the Middle East is even concerned about COVID-19 right now. Their problems are much bigger they're much more real. COVID-19 is an afterthought. It's an issue, but it's an afterthought compared to what they're actually facing. They're facing real persecution, and yet they're growing faster than any other part of the world in terms of church. I am not concerned about whether or not the American church will survive this virus. You want to know what I'm concerned about? I'm concerned about whether or not the American church will remain committed to the Word of God. That's the gut-wrenching fear that I have as a pastor, if you want to know my honest opinion, it's not whether or not COVID-19 will wreck the American church. It has wrecked a lot of the American churches, a lot of local expressions. As James said, doors have closed, budgets have gone down, people have gone out of business. I'm not worried about the American church going under because of a virus. I'm worried about it going under because people are not committed to Scripture. And, and, and the, the most like frustrating thing as a pastor is that all around America on Sunday morning, preachers can get up on a stage and say exactly what we're saying. The Word of God matters. The Word of God is our foundation. The Word of God is our truth. It is our lie. And people will go, Amen. Amen. And very few... That's why we pay you. ...will pick up their Bibles and read it. To study it. Exactly. You just come here and listen to us talk. And listen, I'm happy to talk. That's why I do what I do. Folks, we're just trying to keep it real. Okay? I mean, this is not a beat-down session. This is, no. a, this is a family meeting. It's a, it's and, a call and, to action. And we have to grasp, we have to grapple with this. Yeah. We really do. This is, this is real-time stuff yes. that's going on in our individual lives, and as a result, 
the impact that the church is having upon America. Church in Antioch was committed. They were committed to Scripture. Third, they rendered a great charity. They rendered great charity. Uh, it's interesting, Acts eleven twenty eight. 28, Agabus shows up on the scene. He's a prophet from Jerusalem. He comes down to Antioch, and he prophesies about a great famine that's going to take place in Judea. Um, the, the famine takes place, and so a, a bunch of churches take a sizable economic hit. Sounds familiar, right? <laughs> and Acts eleven twenty nine thirty. 30, it says, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So there wasn't a set number of percentage that they were supposed to give. This is the church in Antioch. This is the church in Antioch. Offering. Okay, they, are, they are gathering money, but there wasn't a set percentage. Each person individually decided what they wanted to give. They gathered it together. They gave it to Paul and Barnabas, and then they went and delivered it to these other churches in Judea. Now, this took uh, several months to put together. The, the progressive Christians wanted more social programs. The conservatives wanted more for military. There were a lot of omnibills put into this stimulus package, uh, but eventually... Called pork <laughs> for Jews. <laughs> I'm joking. They, uh, they put some together... People, some people are going, is he really serious? serious? Did that really happen? That's been going on for that long? That long? It wasn't just uh, Congress? <laughs> They put together a sort of stimulus package for the churches, and, and understand a couple things about this church in Antioch. One, they were a very young church. So this is kind of unusual, right? How long is City on the Hill? You've been here 37, 38? We started 37 years 37 ago. 37 years ago. So Antioch was not like City on a Hill, right? They were not 37 years old. They were months at best old at this point. They were also primarily Gentile. Now, that's something that City on a Hill can relate to, right? We're like all Gentiles in here. That's our problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they're a young Gentile church. They're in the middle of a famine. The economy's wrecked. Churches are suffering. And yet, this little church plant in Antioch still gives. They give a lot. I mean, they give generously. They rendered great charity. Now, how do they do this? I want to give you two quick things that you can put your eyes on, two quick directions to look that will help you become more generous, charitable, compassionate, however you want to think about it. Number one, they looked at the Father with gratitude. Mm -hmm. Now, you cannot give in a Christian sense without recognizing the Father as the giver of all good things. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 8, freely you received, freely you shall give. Jeremiah 31, 35, he talks about the things that we have taken for granted that God gives us, the, the sun for light by day, and he's fixed the order of the moon, the stars by night, he stirs up the seas. The, the next time you ask yourself, you know, what has God ever given me? The answer in short is at least light, air to breathe, and ground to walk on. That's right? a pretty good start. God has done some things for you, whether you recognize them or not. James 1.17 says that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. King David in 1 Chronicles 29.14, he says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as we have given? Everything comes from you, and That's we right. have given you only what comes from your hand. In other yeah. words, the only reason that we can give as believers, as people, apart from Christians, I mean, the only, people, the only reason we can give in, in general is that the Father has given it to us first. And this is fundamental, a fundamental to biblical living. I want to give you a practical truth that you can think about with regard to stewardship real quick. Giving is easier when you recognize that nothing is yours. Giving is easier when you recognize that nothing is yours. It's so much easier. If I'm under the delusion that all of my stuff is mine, I'm the sole provider for myself, I'm responsible for making it happen, I did this, then it's so much harder to give it away, isn't it? Mm. 
Because look, I earned this. I worked hard for this. It's mine. But look, it's not why you have what you have. It's because God has given it to you. I like to think, I thought about this this week, when Jessica and I, we, we go out to eat, we bring our kids with us, it's, it's a rare thing these days because the kids just, unless there's like a playground, which all the playgrounds are shut down from COVID, it's just an unenjoyable experience, right? Um, but we go out to eat, and, and Lydia, our four-year-old, uh, is, for lack of better terminology, impatient. Uh, I'll put it that way. And, and there are, most of the time, we'll, we'll engage with our kids and, and talk, and you know, we have kind of family time, but there are times if Jessica and I really need to have a conversation about something, I'll give Lydia my phone with like a little show or movie on, keep her occupied, and it works great. She sits there, she's quiet, she loves whatever show she's watching, usually superhero girls. That's and, better, um, better than a sedative. It is, it is. <laughs> and we still do that. We still do that. <laughs> Melatonin at night. Um, the deal is, is when the food comes, I'll look at her and I'll say, all right, sweetheart, it's time to give daddy's phone back. And she'll go, I don't want to give it back. I want to keep watching, right? And it's kind of like this whole negotiation process where I have to eventually just kind of take it from her. You're having to negotiate for your own from phone. From my own phone. Oh, okay. And I thought about that this week, that that is what we look like with God when we refuse to give. God says, okay, sweetheart, it's time to, time to give that away. I'm like, I don't want to. It's mine. <laughs> it's mine. Right? And eventually he has to kind of take it from us, doesn't he? Or, or we learn, and, and we give it back cordially. And then the more we give it away, the more the Father trusts us to give us more because he knows that when he asks us, we're going to give it away. Do you see where I'm going with this? This is how the Scripture teaches biblical giving. God will entrust you with what you can be responsible for. And the more you give, the more you receive. It's, it's, a, it's, it's woven throughout the New Testament. I, kind of, I thought God blessed us by our faith to give us… As much as we wanted. As much as we wanted, no, we can keep. You're right. Is Maybe that not, that's, that's, that's a different book. Oh, man. <laughs> that's a different book. That's, that's the book. Of, that's today. the book of Joel okay, and not the biblical Joel. prophet. Okay. Okay. Wow, that so, was good. You like that? That was really that was good. right on the spot. So they looked to the Father with gratitude. They looked to the future with faith. This is the second part. Because God, when we recognize that God is the giver of all good things, here's what it does. It allows us to look to the uncertain future with faith that he's going to continue to provide. Mm -hmm. So when, when I give something away and I'm not sure the econ, you know, economy's down or whatever, there's a famine in this case in Antioch, there's a, a level of uncertainty, I'm sure. The scripture doesn't say it, but Antioch had to be worried. I mean, they had to wonder, like, I hope, hope the Lord comes through for us because we just gave it all away to these other churches, <laughs> right? But look, understand this, that when we recognize that the hand of God is where all good gifts come from, it allows me to look to the future and trust that no matter what happens, the Lord will take care of me. It reminds me of, of Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 25 and 26, where he says, for this reason I say to you, don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life much more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not worth much more than birds? You see, when we worry about our future, we're lessening our, our worth and our value to something less than birds. Because Jesus is like, look, the Father takes care of the birds, and, and you're clearly worth more than that. So will you stop worrying? Will you look to the Father with gratitude that He has given you everything that is in your possession and look to the future with faith, knowing that even if I give all this away today, the Father's going to take care of me. The Lord is going to take care of me. He always has. He always will. These are true metrics. They're hard metrics. They're difficult metrics. Mm. 
And the question that we have to ask is, are, are we going to be a church exemplified by great character? Are people going to look at City on the Hill and go, they're the real deal. I may not agree with everything they say or everything they do, but by gosh, they're the real deal. Will, will they look at us and say, they're so committed to Scripture. That must be why they're different. They are so committed. It's one of the highest priorities in their individual lives. It's the highest priority of the church's life. And they're so generous. Even in the midst of economic uncertainty, they just continue to bless. These are true metrics. Finally, that leads us to the fourth one. That's a lot easier to measure budgets and baptisms and butts than it is, it is. character, isn't it? It is. And commitment to Scripture and our compassion, generosity with the gifts that God has given us. You know, that's, a, that's a difficult to measure those things, and that's kind of why we want to have these other things. We can, we, well, we can just kind of wind up just kind of ignoring these really things that matter. And we say, but look at this budget. Look at these baptisms. Yeah. Look at how many butts are in the seat. Boy, we must really be doing something right, Lord. You know, let me, can I tell you something real fast? A story, just real quick. And then you have all the time. You got all the time in the world. You've been talking for 20 minutes. I, you, I know. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. I went, to, I went to Midland one year with our community pastor, Chris, and uh, we were going down there to, uh, actually to New Mexico, but we stopped in Midland overnight to break up the drive, and, and we met with this guy that was, the, at the time, the youth pastor at Midland, First Baptist Midland, and they had just renovated their worship center. It was a $95 million renovation, and they, and they shrunk their <laughs> auditorium. And they had, this, they had this Russian missionary come and, and see the church, and, and Christian that was the guy's name, the youth pastor at the time, he was telling me about this. He said, you know, all of us pastors, we're all dressed in our suits, and we had this, worship, this uh, Russian missionary come in, and it took about 45 minutes, and the senior pastor led him through all the things that we had done, the new worship center, the new gym, MBA-level gym. I mean, mm-hmm. everything was just to the nines. And he said, one of the most awkward things that has ever happened in my life happened at the very end of that tour when the senior pastor looked at the Russian missionary and he said, so what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) And the Russian missionary said, I am so surprised at how much you've done apart from God. Mm. And the senior pastor was kind of like, I mean, what do you say to that? Mm. And and I think what, what I'm getting at here and what James is getting at here is that by those metrics, First Baptist Midland was killing it. $95 $95 million renovation. That's not their budget. That's just a renovation project. And yet, someone who lives where true metrics are measured, in a place like Russia, mm. where it's illegal to have a Bible in his parts, came in and went, this is godless. Where's the spirit? Where's the character? Where's the wow. commitment? Well, that confirms what I knew growing up in West Texas, that all the money was in Midland. Yeah. Yeah. Monahans didn't have any of the money. We were the workers. Odessa didn't have any of the money. They provided the equipment. All the banking was done in Midland. Midland made it, man. Man, they were, they were the cat's meow. All right, the fourth, right here. It was a church that responded to a great calling. If you'll give me about 12 minutes, we'll go five minutes over. I'll do my best. I'm going to skip a lot of stuff. God gave the church in Antioch a very, very special calling. And in Antioch was not an easy place to fulfill the calling that God had given them. In fact, it rarely is. No, there is really no place to fulfill what we're talking about here. In America or Russia, China, it doesn't matter where it is. It's never easy. No. So think with us about the place where this great church was birthed and was living. Antioch was steeped in idolatry, the Greco-Roman gods. It was the third largest city in the ancient world, only after Rome and Alexandria, where the great uh, library was. 
It was filled with temples to all of the various Greco-Roman gods. And so this was, this was not an easy place for the Christian message. It was steeped in idolatry. Second of all, the people. It was an incredibly diverse group. Before we started holding classes on diversity and talking about diversity, the church in Antioch was already diverse. Yep. It was made up of an incredibly diverse group of people. There was Barnabas, who was Jewish, from Jerusalem. There was Simeon of Niger, who, Niger, meant black. He was a black man who was in leadership in this church. Lucius of Cyrene, that's a Greek name. That means he was a Gentile Christian. So Barnabas had been raised in the Old Testament. Uh, Lucius had been saved out of idolatry, probably worshiping the Greco-Roman mythology. And then there was Manaean, this dude that it says had been raised with Herod. (laughs) He's part of the leadership in this church. In other words, he'd been brought up with Herod in the royal court with a silver spoon in his mouth. And all of a sudden we find him being a Christ follower of this great church in Antioch of Syria. So, so, so the people were incredibly diverse. God, when he works, he's bring, he brings together diversity. Folks, we don't have to, if we really follow the word of God, we don't have to have classes on diversity. That's right. The class on diversity is the word of God. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male nor female. There is neither free nor slave in Christ. That's about as diverse as you can get. One. The problem is we don't really follow the scripture in our hearts. And so therefore we wind up churches not being very diverse. But this was an incredibly diverse group before diversity was even a thing. Now notice the purpose then that in, in this place of Antioch of Syria with this incredibly diverse group of people, notice the purpose for which he called them. It says in chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, that the Holy Spirit said to this leadership group that you are to set aside Saul and Barnabas and send them out for the gospel and support them as they go. So it was from Antioch that, that Paul launched out in the first of his three missionary journeys. They were the sponsoring church for the great apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles for all three of his missionary journeys. Now notice this, Antioch was the launching place for the last part of the great commission. It's given in Matthew 28, but Jesus repeats it again in another way in Acts chapter one, verse eight, just before he ascends to the right hand of the father. He says, now something's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And when he does, you're going to be my witnesses. Who are we going to be witnesses, Jesus? In Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria. Up till chapter 11, okay, we have gotten to, to that point. So the first 11 chapters is the fulfilling of the first three, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. But beginning with Antioch, it goes to the last phase and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Because it is from Antioch that the great apostle Paul carries the gospel to the Gentile nations and establishes churches all over the known world. And for that reason, for the first 10 chapters, The church in Jerusalem dominates all of the thinking. Everything's centered on the church in Jerusalem. But beginning with chapter 11, Jerusalem falls into the kind of the the behind the curtain. And all of a sudden, Antioch becomes the major church for the promotion of the gospel. And that's because they respond, because of the people they were, and because they responded to to the call of the Holy Spirit to not only set Barnabas and Paul aside and... What's God asking for here? He's, he's asking for the best they had. He didn't, they, they didn't say, Lord, no, no, Saul and Barnabas, we can't let them go. They're, they're, they're the core. We got a couple of folks that we'd be glad to send, Lord. No, he said, I want your best. Give me Saul and Barnabas and send them out and support them as they go. 
So it not only costs them personnel, when again, it costs them finances. They'd already done this offering. Now they're going to have to support Paul and Barnabas as they go out on this missionary journey. Are you getting this? This was an incredible calling that God placed upon this young church in Antioch. Ultimately, folks, that's the calling of every church, isn't it? That is the calling of every local church to be promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the only hope by placing faith and trust in him and being saved by grace. That is the calling of every church to carry the gospel. And that's why, folks, church is an essential business. Mm. It's essential to God. It's essential to every culture in which the church is. When the church is, is if, if the church is pulled out of every culture on earth, you watch the hell that begins to immediately happen. The Great Commission is still God's calling upon us. And each and every local congregation carries that out in, in the way that they feel the Holy Spirit leading them. But the gospel is the ultimate goal. Preaching and teaching the gospel. Carrying out the Great Commission. And, and he gives us different perspectives and different ways, but ultimately the purpose is always the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way 30 years ago that we came to understand God speaking to us about our mission to carry out the gospel was to make church a safe place, right? A safe place where people can tell those secrets, those secrets that are dominating their lives and destroying them from the inside out, where people can find help, hope, and healing from, from life's hurts. A, a place where, pardon the double entendre here, Pardon the double entendre. A place where no, people no longer have to wear a mask. <laughs> now, we want you to wear your face mask. We just want you to take off your people mask, okay, and put on your hospital gown. In other words, the mask that we use to cover up what's really going on inside, where our lives are broken and we don't want anybody to know it. And, and so God's calling to us is to carry out the mission of the gospel is to become a church where people that are broken like that can be restored and where broken marriages can be restored and, and, and people can walk in freedom from addictions and broken families can be put together. And we've not perfectly done that, but that's been our heart. And what a great calling. What a great calling. And we've been known for this for 30 years. It's been a key way that we carry out the gospel. And as I look across this auditorium and I think about the people that are on this Zoom call. Is this a call? It's, it's a live Just stream. Just live stream. Okay, whatever. It's okay. Hey, I'm technologically challenged. Zoom works. Okay, Zoom works. Yeah. Um, I think, and I look at the faces, how many of you came here looking for help in your life because your life was broken and you found Jesus? Yeah, there's a lot of them. And there's more that are not here and out on Zoom. And I, and I look at that, how God used this vision of becoming a safe place where people can find help, hope, and healing, whether they're believers or they're not. And, and how many times through the years has our number one bridge of carrying out the gospel been the ministry of help, hope, and healing because people came to get free from something that was destroying their life. And in the process, they found Jesus and really found life. Mm. You see, isn't that cool? Mm. That's why we've been given this calling. I have some questions. Why did God give us specifically this calling? Second question, will it continue? Will it even survive COVID-19? Another question, and I'm not answering them. I'm just, these are rhetorical questions. Is it even relevant anymore? 
It was relevant, we believe, 30 years ago. Is it still relevant today? Well, this might be a good time for us to discuss that question. We all know that right here at the end of 2020, we're in the midst of this worldwide pandemic that has wreaked havoc on people's lives, hasn't it? In every way. It's wreaked havoc physically, wreaked havoc financially, emotionally, and spiritually. Physically, literally, hundreds of thousands of people just in America, not counting worldwide, have died from this virus and multiplied millions more have gotten sick, seriously sick. Financially, businesses in America alone by the tens of the thousands are shutting down. Most of those are small businesses where people have put their entire life into that, all of their money, all of their energy, all of their knowledge into developing that small business in order to employ people and to support their family. And that business has had to shut its doors. Some of them, because of that, are becoming civilly disobedient. They're just saying, you know what? I'm going to defy this shutdown order because if I don't, I can't live. My family won't be able to eat, and a $600 check from the government's not going to get it done. So we see some of these people being driven. I heard one guy say, you can only drive someone against the wall for so long before they kick back. Yep. People are desperate. These small businesses, and then people being laid off from that business goes down, and uh, and I hear a lot of them saying, you know, we did everything you ask us to do. Every time you ask us to make a change, we made the change. And now you're telling us to shut down completely? I, I get tears as I listen to some of these people. Because I think, oh, man. They're thinking, What's, where do I'm going to start again? How am I going to start again? I can't start again like I did when I was 25 when I started this business or, or whatever it is. And some of them are large corporations, but for the most part, the Walmarts of the world are surviving, aren't they? It's just the little people. Yep. It's the little people. Always is. It always is. And, and I heard for them as I hear that, folks, that's devastating. Emotionally, man, this is one that's difficult to measure. People are being devastated emotionally while support structures are no longer available that would normally be there. Loved ones are dying in care homes and their loved ones can't be with them because they're restricted from even being within the facility. And they're resorting to looking through windows to just be with their dying parent or loved one. People in hospitals who can't visit. We had a man who had a, a quintuple uh, bypass this Monday. None of us on the staff could even visit the man. He's going through that physical experience alone, knowing we care, knowing we love, but we can't physically be there because we are... Brian, Brian and I picked up a church member with COVID and pneumonia in both of her lungs and drove her to the hospital, and we got her out and hoisted her onto a, a wheelchair, and they said, okay, that'll be enough. We couldn't even go inside. And because he and Brian had both already had the virus, then they were the ones that were called upon to go pick her up because she was almost dead. She was alone. No one to help her. I mean, you think about the emotional toll that is, that is being raked out on people's lives. And we know that it's happening because domestic abuse is at an all-time high in our culture. Depression and suicide is spiking all over America. Substance abuse is on the rise and we, the list could just go on and on and on. These are all things that are collateral damage 
that is happening beyond the physical. And then, of course, there's the spiritual toll. Churches being closed that have been a, a source of spiritual support for many of God's people's lives. And initially the Zoom thing was kind of cool, but it's gotten old and there's, mm-hmm. there's the lack of human touch that is there. And so some people have even stopped, some of our people have even stopped watching our Zoom. They're not coming to church. They're not watching the Zoom. And they're just wandering out there. Their spiritual support connection has just been, been severed. And I guess what I'm asking, is this ministry of being a hospital of help, hope, and healing, is it relevant? It's more relevant today, folks, than it's ever been. Because coming out of this thing, coming out of this thing, you understand the opportunity for the gospel that we at City on a Hill and other churches who take this mantle on to help people with their physical and their emotional needs in life and also help them with their spiritual needs. Do you not think this is going to be a massive 15-lane wide bridge for the gospel of Jesus Christ? And the last thing the enemy wants is for us to be here and be effective in our community. We can't save the world, but we can save our world, right? That's right. Is it relevant? I think so. I think it is relevant. I heard something this week, and then I'll close with this. And, I, and it, it's haunted me all week long since I heard it. It haunted me so much I can't stop my notes. Can you help me? There you go. The statement went like this. And, and I think you'll relate to this. Our... Everything we've heard from the leaders of our nation, both politicians and doctors and everyone, is that survival in this pandemic is the first priority. It's the first priority. Survive this thing. You must survive. And and so because of that, a lot of our mindset has been about self-survival. And the question that this person was asking was, is, should that be the first priority? Does that not set us up for some all kinds of problems? If, if everything in our lives right now is about just surviving the virus. And he asked this question and it's haunting. It's been haunting to me. So what happens if we survive but haven't lived? That kind of puts the question in context. That doesn't mean that survival is not important. That doesn't mean that we should not do reasonable things to protect ourselves and those that we love. I'm not saying any of that. I'm not saying just, you know. Throw like, caution you, to the wind. and Well, like in the 60s, they threw away their bras. And now we're telling you to throw away your mask. No, I'm not saying that. But I'm simply saying, though, we have to be careful. Was it the 60s? Are they still doing it? I, I was a teenager in the 60s. We were I'm kind still, of excited I'm, about that. <laughs> Anyway, I'm sorry. I was on a serious roll here, and, and I got stupid. That's okay. Okay, thank you. Yeah, it's good. We, Will you forgive me? We forgive you. You're going to have to. You've forgiven me for 37 years. Yeah. Okay. But, but think about that. If we, we throw everything else to the wind for the primary goal of surviving this thing, and we stop living. I don't know. I'm just going to leave that one to you. Because I think there's a balance that we have to find here, isn't there? If, if, if it's just living and not surviving, well, then, yeah, that's out of balance. If it's just surviving and we cease to live, well, that's out of balance. And, and so I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm challenging you as a body of believers because we are going, we've set, in 2021, we're storming the gates of hell. That's right. And if we storm with 
a few, then we'll storm it. If we storm with everyone, we're going to storm it. But we are going to lead the church to storm the gates of hell. And we're going to do so responsibly. And we're going to do so... Unapologetically. Unapologetically. January 10th, we're opening the two services. There we're going may be, to full-scale children's ministry, youth ministry. There may be 15 people in this room. In the second service. I don't know what it'll be. We could care less. But each one of us, has. we're having as pastors, as leaders of this congregation, we're having to balance this thing. Is it really all just about survival? Have we stopped living in order to survive? Is it all just about living? No, it's not about that either. We have to survive. And we have to be careful and we have to take responsibility for ourselves and, and care graciously for other people. But folks, it's time to just stop thinking about survival. Yep. We have a calling and our culture is coming out of a pandemic that is going to need us in our community, in our city. And the question for us today, are we the type of church that's going to step up to the plate? That's all there is to it. These are metrics we live and die by. We do. We live and die by them. The Antioch Christians live and die. The, the Chinese Christians are living and dying by these metrics. Some of them are living and dying. Some of them are living and surviving. But they are doing both. Hmm. This is our challenge. And we don't mean this to be mean. We're not trying to shame anybody. You make your individual decisions. You know, we've told you for a year. We're going to support your individual decision. I'm talking about a church as collectively. We, it's time to move on. This train has got to leave the station because the cost in people's lives is high. And the opportunity for the gospel is higher than it has ever been yes. in the 37 years since we started this church. That's right. Now is the time. I believe God's calling us to step up. Survive, yes. Live. Live. Let's do it. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for reminding us that in the midst of this, uh, you are sovereign. This didn't catch you by surprise. And the struggles and the individual decisions that your people are having to make haven't caught you by surprise. So we ask you for your Holy Spirit's direction and leadership for each individual one. And as we move into this new year, we're certainly not going to be able to put the 2020 behind us. No, no. It's just getting started. The work, the ministry, and maybe even the continued struggle of survival. But Father, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you are in charge, and that we can trust you. And that we will take this message of our Savior Jesus that found us and saved us. We will take it to every man, woman, and child that we can. We'll live. We'll live. And we pray that we'll survive. But if we do not, we are thankful to be counted worthy to lay our lives on the altar of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, we went a little bit over. <laughs> Thank you. Bless, bless you guys. Send all of your criticisms to Derek. And I'll, I'll answer them next year, which is like in four days. God so. bless you. See you all. New Year's coming on. <laughs>